So the Tanakh is known as the, 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 the Torah, the, ne- <coughs> the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And the Nevi'im means the prophets. And this section was, was traditionally split into two groups. Uh, the former prophets being Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Kings. Again, this is the way that the ancient Hebrews looked at it. And the latter prophets, Isaiah through Malachi. Uh, in Christian tradition, the former prophets are thought of as the historical books. And the latter prophets are categorized as the major and minor prophets. And then the Ketuvim means the writings. And this sort of sub-collection includes the rest of the Old Testament. Everything from Daniel to Esther. Uh, Proverbs, Job's, and more. Uh, it's here, <coughs> again, nestled at the end of Ketuvim, that we see Chronicles wrap up the Hebrew can- canon. <coughs> Second Chronicles was the last book in the Hebrew canon when it was first written. And there's a reason for that. We'll probably go over when we get to Chronicles. Uh, it was only after, again, Christians sort of uh, put together the canon the way they wanted to see it. With good reason. Um, uh, and, and again, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that. The later Christian tradition, uh, 200, 300 B.C., basically have the Pentateuch, the history, the poets, and the prophets. Okay? It's all referring to sort of the same thing. So, why should we study the Old Testament? Anyone? <laughs> why should we study the Old Testament? Well... I'm sorry? It's the foundation. This is the foundation. That's right. Exactly right. Let's, let's look at some scriptures to sort of talk about. Let's look at some scripture to tell us why the Old Testament is so important. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verses three through four. Most of you know this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. That He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What Scriptures? The Old Testament. Okay? Uh, Luke chapter 22, verses 13 to 27. We have what? What's going on there? Luke 22, 13 to 27. The road to Emmaus. Yes, right, the road to Emmaus. Emmaus. And what goes on there? That's right. He opened up their minds to receive certain things. And here are those things. Uh, without reading the entire passage. Um, Although their hearts burned within them, but they really didn't understand it because they didn't know who he was. Yeah, and they didn't write. They didn't, and, and, and they didn't grasp the Old Testament. You know? They just didn't grasp the scriptures yet. For, for whatever reason, yeah. He did, and that, it's a great point. That he calls them fools. If you don't know the Old Testament, it's because you're a fool. Right? So you need to become unfoolish in learn the Old Testament. To the Sadducees who tried to stump them by saying, a woman that has seven husbands, they all died in the resurrection. Who will be the husband of that woman? That's right. Jesus said, you do err not knowing the scriptures. Yep. Nor the power of God. Yep, yep, yep. Thank you for that. Indeed, indeed. I think I was in the wrong, by the way. It's not Luke 22, it's Luke 23. God, sorry, Luke 24. Um, yeah, blah, blah, blah. So they drew to the village. He acted as, uh, back up a little bit. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. And as you had mentioned, Gary, oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You know, all that the prophets have spoken. And he called them foolish. So Same it's so important. Yeah. Another example would be the rich man who asked that Abraham would send his mm. send Lazarus yes, exactly. to my five brothers. And 
he said, well, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe them, they wouldn't believe even if someone rose from the dead. <coughs> Great point. Here's another good passage. Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53, the whole experience of Stephen. Stephen basically goes through and recapitulates the entire story of God, the entire Old Testament. I'm not going to read the whole thing, right? But you know what's going on there. <coughs> and, he, and, and in his sort of recap of everything, right? When they accused him of being this and that, the lying about him and everything else, he had a real like, similar experience to what Jesus went through. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Jacob and the twelve patriarchs. He talks about Joseph in Egypt. He talks about the Egyptian slavery. He talks about Moses' deliverance. The giving of the law on Sinai, the golden calf, the tent of witness. He talks about Joshua, David. He talks about Solomon and the temple. And it's interesting that he stops right there at the temple. That's the last place he stops. And at that moment, after he mentions the temple, that's when he lets into him, right? And he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. This is after he said... The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Right? And so everything that they thought about, oh, the temple, the temple, the temple. Right? And he says, you missed the whole point of the temple. You missed everything. You missed it all. And, and why? Because they were stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. They paid no attention at all to what God had revealed in the Old Testament. All their time, all their training in Tanakh, all their training in the, everything, wasted because they knew nothing about what God was doing. And if we come to the New Testament without a good knowledge of the Old Testament, we have no idea what God is doing, and we end up just talking about a very man-centered gospel, that Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven. Yes? I'm going to say a good example of their blindness was the fact, as Second Corinthians mentions, that the veil was upon their hearts. Yes. Yeah. So mm -hmm. the reading of the Old Testament was, mm. was fruitless for them. Exactly. It just didn't mean anything. It just didn't mean anything. Over in John, again, when, when Jesus is uh, locking horns with his interlocutors, he says, in John 5, 37 to 39, he says, <clears throat> The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And so that's, this is why the Old Testament is so important. They bear witness to Christ. Okay? And, and, so, and so we come back and just sort of revisit that question. right? How important then is our study of, of the Old Testament? And you think of the many things in the Old Testament we probably just don't know. The average Christian doesn't spend a lot of time there. Right? I mean, if I was going to, uh, you know, preach a sermon on a name, most people would be like, who? A name. What's up with Nahum? Alright, what is the main unifying theme of the Bible? What is the Bible all about? Jesus Christ. No. Next. <laughs> <laughs> not, not immediately. It depends on who you talk to, though. In a sense. No, it doesn't depend who you talk yeah, to. It does. No, it doesn't. No, it does not. I, 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 I'll, we'll go to the mat on that one. Alright. Well, I've got a question one more yes. time. Well, you'll have to talk about... What is the main unifying theme? I'm just teasing. What is the main unifying theme of the entire Bible? Why would you say... Okay, so you said Jesus Christ, and then 
And then you said, um, not everyone would agree with the fact that I said it's not all about Jesus Christ. I mean, in, in, in a sense it is, and I'll, I'll tell you why, but what, what's your sense of, when you say not all agree, well, where is it? you have three main camps, dispensationalism, and you have covenantalism, and you have new covenant, yep. each, each drive a stake in the ground, not disbelieving the importance of the others, but they each drive a stake in the ground about the importance of the Bible, what the overall Bible is speaking about, and covenants is for the Presbyterian, sacrosanct, and mm-hmm. for the for the uh, dispensational, it's Israel, yeah. and for the New Covenant theologian, it's Christ. Right. And I think that I think I can still present something that every one of them would agree on and would say, "Oh yeah, how did I miss that?" So you weren't you weren't, you weren't looking for a theological yes, I am. answer. Sorry, sure looking for a sure phrase. Sure, no, nope. yes, right? Yeah, sure, a very short phrase. Yes. History. In a sense. Or history. The history of what? But now you're getting closer. Well, his story. That's yes. History. Yes. It's, 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 every, it's, it's mankind. It's, it's the universe. Let's, it's everything. It's let, just all of it. Let me share with you what I think is... Uh, <laughs> let me share with you what... Uh, I like the way Greg uh, Coco put this. The Bible is all about God's rulership over his kingdom. Yeah. Period. Yeah. And anybody, no matter what camp you're in, dispensationalism, anything, all those things... And that was my point. All those things are secondary. <laughs> First and foremost, the scripture is all about God's rulership. Over his kingdom. I'm sorry? I said God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you're, so meek. You're, you're so meek, I didn't hear that. We're not allowed to speak, by the way. Absolutely. <laughs> well, so, yeah, no, you know, our, okay. our failure to address society yes. is based on yes. our lack of ability to be able to understand that. Yes. And accept the Old Testament scripture. This, this, is, this is the whole problem, right? This is where it all begins. This is why it's all... And that's why I said it's really probably a lot simpler than we think. Now, obviously, right? I mean, everything falls under this. Everything falls under this sort of main heading. Salvation is obviously not the main theme of the Bible. Love is not the main theme of the Bible. Now, you said Jesus Christ, and so in a, in a, in a sense, of course, since He is the God-man, it is, it is a lot about... Jesus Christ, of course, but Jesus Christ is critical in his role as God in establishing the rulership of God over God's own kingdom. Right? So and that's why I offer that. It's just very simple. And the reason why I think it's so difficult for people and they don't just grasp that is because of our nature of rebellion against God. We hate the fact that God is God. It's that simple. You know? I mean, not... The, us, us that are born again but in, but in an unbelief we just can't get over the fact that God dares to call himself God well I'm just reminded that we will not have this man to rule over us right yeah exactly and that's just the way we are I mean where it comes up in a lot of different ways uh, but it is all about God his rulership his kingdom that's what it's all about and everything that he has to do of course with respect to salvation and wrath and love all those things are a you know a um, an extension of or an expression of what his rulership looks like? What's it like when you go against him, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So you follow that? Does that is everybody comfortable with that now? So even if you're a dispensationalist or a charismatic or a this or a that, I, I would I would dare say I think uh, that every one of them would say, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I do agree with that. And then they might say, but God establishes His rule through dispensationalism, right, or something like that. And then then the real fight begins. But the thing that uh, we would all have to have in common is God's rulership. Yeah, it is over His kingdom. That is the very sort of foundation. And again, it's just because we don't 
necessarily think in those terms. We, I think that we talk about it, and, and it's always in the back of our mind a lot. You know, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we talk about the providence of God. You know, ultimately what we're talking about is God's rulership, and we'll see how that connects with us as well. So, the what I'm hoping for is each each book, and this will be the goal for us to teach. You know, Todd and a few others. Uh, Randy, if you get in the mix at some point, I know you're busy with Fridays, but, but whoever. Uh, but the study of each book is going to sort of entail, or take a look at, let's say, God's rulership over his kingdom. How is that asserted? How do we see that in the particular book we're looking at? What is God's rulership? What is God doing in his kingdom? What, how is God demonstrating, proclaiming, claiming, demanding? You know, what is it that God is doing that is a reminder to humanity that this is his kingdom and that he is ruling over it? Right? And by the way, the gospel proclamation is is that Christ is Lord. Right? That's the gospel. Pro- you know, when we use gospel, the word good news, the Romans use that all the time. You know, when they talk about their king, Caesar is Lord. I mean, the proclamation that there's that he's conquered, he's the, he's the conqueror, he's the victorious one. That was gospel. That was good news in the Old Testament. Good news. You know, the people come running with good news about Israel having won in battle or something. You know, so. We'll get to that. So again, how is that asserted? How is God's rulership over his kingdom asserted in each book? And in, in like in some of the particular texts that go with that. And then, what is the response of man to God? We'll see that in each book as well. Because again, there's two major themes. There's a, there's a theme that follows that first theme, right, with God's rulership. And God says, I am the Lord your God. And man says, I have a problem with that. That's that's what's going on. That's that's really the story of reality. God says, "I am God," and man says, "I have a problem with that." And that's the bottom line. Even in our own lives, every day, we will find, if we look honestly and openly, idolatry. We still have little idols here and there. And again, we'll look at the t- just some select texts to show what's going on in that book to demonstrate. Okay, how is man responding to God here? How is man progressing? in his response to God. How is he fitting in with what God is doing? Is he, is he coming along some? Has exile made a difference? Is the giving of the law made a difference? Has deliverance from Pharaoh made a difference? Right? Having seen all that they did, everything that God's done, the wonders, how, when they're in the desert complaining, how is man responding to God? And then, third, the response of God. The response of God to the response of man, if you will, right? Are we seeing love, mercy, wrath, justice? These are always the way that God responds to man. Or, you know, obviously in many cases initiates, but even when God initiates, he's doing so as a matter of showing man that his response to God is, is off. You follow me? Could this be a verse that would fit into what you're saying as the theme of the whole Bible? The earth is the Lord's. Sure. Mm-hmm. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and all they that dwell therein. Absolutely. That in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. End of story. All done. You know what I mean? This, this is all his. If we need to remind ourselves of anything, it could be that verse and the other one. It could be our, you know, the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof. Well, you know, from a deistic standpoint, I've been reading a little bit about mm-hmm. the different theories of people have held over the centuries and... Uh, the deist, of course, would agree that God created everything, but then he just kind of let it go on its own 
and he's not actively involved in the affairs of, of life. Yep. But and so and so what you're touching on is you have to have a right understanding of who God is. So a deist is not is not a theist. A deist is a pagan in so many ways. I mean, they don't they don't believe in it. They certainly don't believe in the triune God. So George Washington and some of the fathers would be in that category. No, he was not a Christian. No. What? I don't think George Washington was a Christian. Oh yeah. He was. Yeah. Did he proclaim Christ? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I doubt uh, most of those guys were Christian, I, but yeah, I, I'm not. I mean, I don't. I don't. Yeah, really I'm gonna be real careful with this. I believe that we're a, a sort of a uh, you know a Judeo-Christian valued country, but I don't believe we were built on sort of Christian Christianity. But people have different positions on that. <laughs> uh, I don't believe we're a Christian nation that way. I don't believe we ever have been. But you know, there are those that obviously obviously would disagree. And Bill yeah, Gilmore is a hard man to disagree with. We yeah. had a close semblance, you could say, to to a national Christianity yeah. in the past. I, I guess I guess we you know really have to say what do we mean? Again, we got to define our terms. So what do we mean yeah, by I a mean, Christian I, nation? Yeah, I mean, I, we're not a Christian nation in right. that sense, but right. we certainly founded on Christian principles. Right. I mean that is unquestionable. If we say and, and if we say like founded on Christian yeah. principles, would, would they're all Christian. Right. 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 I'm sorry. Look at the Mayflower contact. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, or even but there would be people that weren't Christians that would have easily agreed with them too. You know what I'm saying? Uh, that's that's sort of my sense of history. Is that Franklin has said something about uh, the Constitution is, is for religious people. It's wholly un, unfit for any other right. type. I mean, yeah, Thomas I Jefferson was certainly not a Christian. Thomas Jefferson tore no, chunks right. out of the Bible. No. So, I mean, some of our founding fathers were certainly not Christian. So, I guess the question of... Yeah. I didn't want to get too in the weeds on this, but it's an interesting discussion, I suppose, is that. Is what, you know... Are we a Christian nation, or were we, were we founded as a Christian nation? I mean, certain people came over here. Christians were persecuted in that respect. We are endowed by our Creator. Certainly, right. yeah. And even the Jehovah's Witnesses would agree with that. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, and see, that's my point too, right? So, so no, I get it. And a even, lot of even though, to us because right. because of that very right. reason, right? And so I guess when I think of maybe the historical way of framing that question would lead people to the different conclusions they were at because. If I were to say, are we a Christian nation? I'd say, well, we founded upon the principles that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that this is His world, and He is in the process of redeeming it to Himself, and that man is lost and sinful, etc., etc. And without, without that relationship with Jesus Christ, then a man is condemned to an eternity apart from God. You know what I mean? And God is not glorified. So, I guess that it requires a lot more sort of uh, parsing out exactly what is meant from that. Um, Certainly, I guess, I don't guess, certainly Christian men and non-Christians who are strong theists. Um, and even some deists, I guess, who believe that there was some sort of a supreme authority recognizes that there's something way above us that has set a certain order of things, even if they step things started and walked away. I just think it takes a real careful articulation of what does it mean to be a Christian nation or to be built upon you know, Christian principles. And I think that's kind of the hot point there is uh, yeah. what is the definition of a Christian? Right. You know what I mean? We use the word freely these days, and right. that, since George Whitfield been right. following mm-hmm. the word "born again," I mean, right. out of the scriptures, but right. it wasn't a commonly used word in the 1600s or 1500s right. and so on. Yes, and even if we were, and even if let's, let's give the let's give the um, let's let's give the weight of evidence, so to speak, uh, with with Bill, for example, uh, that doesn't mean, of course, that there was a lot we didn't know, which falls in line helpful with this too. A lot that we didn't get right, right. A lot that we didn't get right. A lot that had nothing to do with it. That actually violated our own Christian principles. Slavery being the greatest among them, of course. At least in the parts of the country where they had it. Right? And yet, 
people in the South used the Bible to advocate for slavery, right? So, we're going to run into that all the time. So, I guess probably, I guess maybe the best fairest way to be familiar with it, the only thing that's really founded on Christian principles is the Christian church. So maybe we're just talking about you know, somewhat different, you know what I mean? Somewhat different sort of things. Um, I can certainly, we can certainly agree we need a Christian nation now. <laughs> yeah, Todd. Well, you know, um, I got this from Rabbi Zacharias. I, I held it in my pocket for a long time. Um, it's mm. still a sad story. Yeah. He had, was still with so much wisdom in yet. Mm, I know. The testament. But anyways, um, you know, he said, he said um, don't compare my faith uh, and the truth that I declare mm. as something that it right. depends on my obedience. Right. Uh, look at Christ. Uh-huh. And see if he is the one that the Bible was talking about, right. and that he is the one that can save you. Mm-hmm. In other words, in other words, measure me. Mm-hmm. Don't measure the world through me mm-hmm. and my, all those claims of measure to Christ. <laughs> measure to the holiness of Christ. Yeah. So the problem is, is that when we sin, people look at us and then they say hypocrite and they they walk the other way. Yeah. Yeah. And. Um, the Bible is irrefutable. Mm-hmm. It describes right. God to a T. It describes yep. man to a T. We shouldn't. Yes. We shouldn't be surprised by the things that happen. And 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 maybe Bill, you can help me out too. It's like, what is this sense of like? So when you uh, think in terms of a, a Christian founding or moorings, what what sort of things would be the best way to sort of advocate for that? You know what I'm saying? In other words, I look at some of the things I like. I mean, I love the language of the Constitution and all that. There were those who say that thing is a borderline divine document in a sense. But so, if you were going to sort of, sort of, simply present that in a way that I guess, right? Or, or, or what, what's what would be the best way to sort of let's say we're I'm a, I'm a liberal, progressive liberal, and I'm saying, Bill, this nation was not founded on Christian principles. I guess sort of what would we were endowed by our Creator. Right. That would be the first thing that I would say. Right. Mm-hmm. Because that is that that admits to the existence of God. Right. Mm-hmm. And that our rights come from God. Mm-hmm. That's the end. I mean, for me, yeah. Yeah. that's about as clean as it gets. Yeah. But and probably too, because that's because you're so far into knowledge of who God is and everything, you know what I mean? Whereas like the, the, the liberals, this is why I guess it's so hard to even have this Well, but the liberals want to get rid of. They want to get rid of. They don't, yeah. they, they hate the Constitution. Yeah. They hate the Declaration. Yeah. That's because they, by and large, hate God. Yeah. Right. So, but, they, <laughs> yeah, but, I, first of all, I would never engage a liberal in this particular manner. That's probably why. Well, politically and personally, I just wouldn't do it because That's it's why. not worth it. That's why. You know, yeah. just to stand up your sandals and move along. Yes. Don't you think it's kind of a, excuse me, a circular argument because God has to reveal himself to us. You know, we have to yes. be drawn to, to yes. God and to, to see the things of God. We yes. can argue, oh, here you go, Genesis 1-1. You know what I mean? It's like some people, they're not going to even come close to grasping you know, like, like, what the film. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean we can just kind of keep going around and around and around and all this and the main thing of course is that we understand as Christian people what our foundation is and how we grow and mature from here and understand we have to have the right root, right root <laughs> the correct view of reality if we're going to present it to other people right we have to and that's really what we're doing we're, 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 in, a, we're in a conflict of reality perceived realities alright a couple notes on interpreting ancient texts this is, this is from uh, an introduction to the Old Testament by a couple of guys way smarter than us, uh, me anyway, Kremper Longman III and Raymond Dillard, a couple of real bright guys. 
Literary genre, shape, and style of book are essential to its proper interpretation. Right? Literary genre and the type of literature, uh, shape, and style of a book are essential to its proper interpretation. Otherwise, you could end up with potential errors. For example, Leviathan. Leviathan is a mythical creature. It was something well known in the ancient Near East and the Mesopotamian area as this great creature. It was a mythical creature that lived in the seas. And so, when we read about Leviathan in various places of Scripture, we're not supposed to be saying, oh, is that, is that how we're supposed to understand God's language for the dinosaurs? No, it has nothing to do with that. You have to understand the ancient culture and the setting that it's in. And what did all these people know about? Okay? It's not a reference to a dinosaur. It's not making and establishing a scientific case for the dinosaur. The books of the Bible, they continue, are culture-bound. They're written for people in antiquity, in a language and culture with literary conventions that they understood. Biblical theology follows a roughly chronological order. Okay, so basically what we see, but chronology is not, as the author says, a straitjacket. In other words, occasionally there are themes going on in scripture that take precedence and I think that's why Christians probably change things up the way that the scrolls were arranged in the Tanakh for example right so when they studied the Tanakh, the Tanakh which was a number of scrolls right and they had them in a certain sequence in a certain order but it makes sense I guess if in Christianity to make sure that the books of the Old Testament the canon is put together in such a way as to convey the message in a way that's better understood for Christian worldview or something to that effect what does a book tell its reader about God and their relationship with Him? And that's, that's what we're talking about when we say, what does we say about um, you know, God's rulership of His kingdom and man's response to that, woman's response to that? Is what does a book tell its reader about God and their relationship with Him? The first step to a proper approach to a book's theological purpose is to inquire what the message that is addressed to its ancient audience. The audience, and this is so important, especially in the Old Testament. Especially in the Old Testament, because the literary types are so varied. Right? In the New Testament, you're not running into a lot of poetry unless they're quoting Hebrew poetry from the Old Testament in certain places. Okay? And, and I'm, uh, full disclosure, I'm a modern expert in Hebrew poetry. I know it's not the same as Walt Whitman poetry. Right? <coughs> it's not the same. Even, even the way that we use poetry would be the same way the Hebrews did. Um, and I understand that they're Hebrew. Hebrew poetry, ancient Hebrew poetry, is esteemed among poets anywhere and everywhere for its uh, great quality and the way that it conveys and communicates things that I would begin to. Um, what did they learn about God? Okay, what did they learn about God? Another important point, <clears throat> again, especially when dealing with Genesis and, and the Pentateuch, because we get into such, we can get into run into some real weirdness. You think, you know getting tangled up a little and are we a Christian nation or not and what does that mean and how do we parse that out if you think that's complicated the things in Genesis can get really complicated for people okay John Walton in his NIV application commentary says a strong emphasis on the divine inspiration of the text naturally this is I'll, I'll, and I'll parse this out for us a strong emphasis on the divine inspiration of the text naturally tends to overshadow the obligation to read the Bible in its own human and historical setting in order to grasp the truth. It encourages readers to seek the pure divine message to themselves here and now and to assume they will grasp its meaning by best reading the text in its most, quote, natural way. Which means, in a way, congenial to the assumptions of the reader, maximizing the danger of text manipulation. So, in other words, they say, okay, the, the Bible is divine, right? Everyone agree with that. And now, what does it sort of mean to me that it's, since it's divine? in the sense of bringing my own culture and my own everything to it, 
instead of saying, okay, take a look at the historical setting and what they understood. God spoke to a people, revealed to a people in a particular way based on the setting that they were in. It doesn't matter that they would believe some weird things. God used those things. If God can use evil to promote his own good, and if he can make a donkey talk and a snake in with an else, then he can certainly do all kinds of things with the culture that he has. God doesn't need to transport us, you know, 5,000 years into the future. So the point that he's saying is, sometimes people will assume that they grasp its meaning by reading the text in its, quote, most natural way. And that's when we run into a danger, okay? Um... Because the, the question has to be, you know, sort of natural to who? <laughs> natural to who? I mean, well, natural to the original audience. Okay? Natural to the original audience. Which means we have to acclimate ourselves to their thinking, their culture, their way of life. Even if we use modern English words to describe it, we've got to make sure we're describing it in a way or understanding it in the way that they understood it. And, I, and biblical interpretation is a big task. Interpreting any ancient text is a very big task. Successful interpreters must try to understand the cultural background of the ancient Near East just as successful missionaries must learn the culture, language, and worldview of the people they're trying to reach. You know, missionaries don't just go into some place and start acting American. Right? That's not going to go over. Right? Imagine trying to understand Groundhog Day if you're not from the United States. <laughs> right? You, you read about this annual event where people gather to find out if there will be six more weeks of winter based on whether Groundhog sees its shadow. Now, if I was in another country and I heard that, I'd be like, what these idiots haven't heard? How can you be in America? How can you, have, how can you have Silicon Valley and all the technology we have and not realize that a groundhog can't predict the world. Right. Well, you have to get yourself into the culture. And that means you've got to find out an awful lot. Wait, there's, a, there's a tradition here that started way back when X happened. There's a tradition here that means this, right? Without some real knowledge and understanding of the culture that it's in, in addition to the fact that Americans be weird sometimes with all our other beauty, uh, it's another one. In Japan, Christmas isn't really separate, isn't really celebrated. But Kentucky Fried Chicken sure is. Yes, this is from Newsweek. Yes, eating Kentucky Fried Chicken on, the on December 25th instead of having a homemade Christmas, di Christmas dinner is a tradition in Japan. Okay? The Colonel's special recipe for fried chicken is so popular that the chain asks customers to place their orders at least two months in advance. So can you imagine you get a Japanese neighbor, they move in, just came over from Japan, right? They happen to move into your little neighborhood down here in Holland. Alright, Randy? All of a sudden you get a knock on your door on Christmas Day and there's this lovely Japanese family and they got a big bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> Alright? And they say, hey, it's, you know... I'm like, okay, so I'd be thinking, okay, Santa and the Colonel look a little alike. Right? It's like a white beard thing going on, right? I mean, did the Colonel grease himself up with chicken grease and go down the chimney? I mean, is it just, you know, it's just... Right? So you have to know. And those are such simple examples, aren't they? But, but they're meaningful. They're meaningful. And when we go into the Old Testament, we, have, we run the danger of being the lovely Japanese family that shows up on the footsteps of Genesis with a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Right? So, let's talk a little, get, get into talking a little bit about Genesis uh, 1 to 2. Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, right? So that, that, that's why it's God's rulership over his kingdom. Everything is God's, right? Period. For, for the rest of the Bible is acting to help. You know, God is, is, is 
is initiating, he's acting, you know, responding in a sense, to see that his sovereignty, his rule, his dominion, his kingdom is what constitutes reality for his creation. Okay? This, this is what reality... God gets to define reality. Okay? And, and then also, for us to understand and celebrate what a good thing that is. The rest of the Bible is God helping us getting over our idolatry. Right? He loves us so much He's going to help us get over our idolatry so that we can enjoy Him. Now and, <coughs> excuse me, and forever. Right? Um, and so, this, this is what's happening. This is what Genesis 1-1 sets the stage for. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What a, I mean, the abject genius of God. Right? Uh, and, and you made the, 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 the very excellent point uh, a little bit back that yeah, God has to reveal himself. And, and for you and me, like when I say we're endowed by our creator, when I think about that, I think about everything that God has done. Right? And how much richer is that for a, for a Christian? Right? When you and I think that we're endowed by our Creator with rights that no man can take away. Right? Because He gave them to us. And, and, and He has to redeem us for those to go. We have all of this, man, packed in our head and in our hearts. And we celebrate it every day. And it's so rich and it's so awesome. For someone to, to, to try to grasp a hold of that and endowed by it, to me, it, it, you know what it is? It's like, uh, it's like say, a quote-unquote liberal would say, oh, that, that's just the Republican way of thinking of things, right? It's, it's just the, right? So it's just, it, it's, 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 it's lost of all its meaning, of all it's supposed to mean. So when you know God, uh, how much more, and, you know, again, I suspect that's why you've been doing it for however many, however many years you've been doing it, that drive, uh, doesn't come from you. And God said, I'm going to have my man and I'm going to have my woman in the culture letting them know what it means. What kind of God bestows these inalienable rights? The one that's willing to die for them. You know, so that they can have what they need to be what I created them to be. It was we're also going to talk about. Okay, regarding creation. And here's where I said we can get in a serious trouble with what I previously mentioned Regarding the most natural reading tendency that we have of, of, of text, when we don't again, when we don't think of what does the Old Testament mean, how was it written to, what was their worldview, right? Because again, it's not that it, it, it's, it's when I come in here and start talking to you, right? If, if I was from another country and I came in here and started talking to you, I, I would have to talk to you on your terms. It's like the missionary example. I, I got to speak to you on your terms. I got to know what your culture is like. I got to know who you are if I'm going to have a meaningful dialogue with you. You know, God's mission to us was kind of like that. <laughs> he came to us and spoke our, the word made flesh, condescended to us to come and speak our language, come into our culture the way we had perverted it, which is actually his culture that we perverted. And so the question is natural for who? And again, <coughs> natural for the original audience to whom it was written. And many treat, uh, this is a, this is a, Let's just be careful in this area, okay? Because, uh, you know, Genesis, of course, has become a battleground for different groups of Christians. And so when I say what I'm going to say, some of it might sound somewhat new, some of it might sound, or not new, but, you know, like people's little red, we all have little red flags go up that we wouldn't admit to at times, okay? There are things built into Genesis, not built into Genesis, things that we've taken Genesis 
and make it do things it was never intended to do, and therefore we argue about it. Okay? Many treat Genesis as a science text, and, and it just simply isn't. Okay? Genesis is not a science text. It is an ancient, scientifically ignorant. Uh, okay? it, it's, Genesis tells us very little, for example, about the age of the universe or the age of the earth. Because that's not how the original people thought about creation. What's going to be important for us to do now is just step outside your, your previously held commitments and convictions and consider what might come across to some as a somewhat different angle. And that is, how did the ancient people think about creation when they thought about creation? That's very important. When this is being talked to people, what, what did the ancient people think about creation? What was foremost in their mind? And in the, in the ancient Near East, the cultures of the ancient people to whom this is written, let's keep in mind there's many creation stories, okay? There's, here's an example of the Enuma Elish from Babylon. The god Marduk's victory, and, and the reason why I'm pointing this out is the, the, um, the, the, uh, the way that God actually created everything God is doing is so different to what we see going on than the creation myths in the surrounding cultures. But again, these were the prevailing myths. This was the way people thought. So when this is revealed by, when Genesis is being uh, sent out there by Moses, this is getting out there, this is like, whoa, this is quite contrary to the way we think about things. And we'll, we'll see why. We'll see how different God is, the true God, from the gods of the nations. Just how different God really is. Because he's as different, he was as different to them now as he is to our cultures, various cultures now. Right? The way that people perceive of God now. The average person we work with, the persons we might go to school with, their perceptions of God will be as different as the reality of God is as the way that the revelation from God to Moses was to the people that are originally going to be hearing some of this and the culture in which it was sent. Okay? So, the God Marduk's victory over Tiamat, the sea monster, and forming from her dead body the heavens and the earth. That's, that's the ancient Babylon creation myth. So, the God Marduk's victory over a sea monster, Tiamat. Notice there's a sea monster. Chaos, right? This is... There's a sea monster that finds its way into lots of the ancient literature, including the ancient, all the ancient Near East where Israel was. Sea monsters, chaos, seas. This is a theme that's very much consistent among the ancient people. The seas represented chaos. Creatures unknown, right? There was, well, we, don't, we don't think of it that way. I mean, we can hop on jet skis and zip across the bay, right? We can get from Boston to Provincetown on a jet ski if we want to. I don't know why you want to go there, but, uh, you know, right? So, uh, I guess they have good restaurants. Um, and, and afterwards, <laughs> afterwards, he executes her henchman escort, Kinku, and from his blood in the clay of the earth, he forms humanity. So we see again, being formed from the clay of the earth, from the dust of the earth. So very, very commonly shared notions of how did, how did the gods form? How did God form? What does it mean that God created? Well, he, 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 in, both, in both the Hebrew scriptures and in the ancient uh, myths, we see God creating from the earth. So, there's a, there's, so, so people had this in mind. And the truth is, in a sense, as we'll see from Genesis, um, we're not going to dig into every detail. And what does it mean? That, for example, we won't spend a lot of time on what exactly does that mean. And there's other creation myths like that. But a lot of them hold these common sorts of themes. Somehow the sea is involved. Right? What do we see in Genesis? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was up and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the, hover and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, right? Which is a good thing, because the waters were this chaotic turmoil. Okay? 
and you, you think a little bit about Noah and his ark. Here is God putting the ark in this turmoil, this God delivering through the thing that is out of man's absolute control, right? Uh, I don't know who I'm quoting here. Creation in Babylon is the result of divine... Uh, get Babylon. Now follow this all the way to the Revelation. When Babylon is the world order set against God, right? Babylon is spoken of uh, in allegorical form as, as a prostitute riding a seven-headed dragon, etc., etc., however many heads it had. These themes remain, and they stay consistent. Babylon always represented something, okay? And it's because it was chiefly <coughs> opposed to God. Creation in Babylon is the result of divine sexual activity and conflict. Whereas in Genesis, God himself is sovereign, self-sufficient, and supreme. So if you were to read some of the creation myths, you'd see this tension and this fighting among the gods all the time. And how much, we'll touch on based on this, how much they need humans. The creation story of God, the Hebrew creation story, is completely different than anything that's ever been heard at that time. Okay? Although, the themes are not unfamiliar to people. The sea monsters, the, 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 the forming from the clay, blood, all this stuff is well known. And we'll see when we get to Noah. Just, there are many uh, um, uh, uh, flood myths, flood stories from the ancient Near East. Okay? It's not unique to the Hebrew scriptures at all. Which is good. Um, again, from that Old Testament survey. It is striking in Genesis 1 and 2, it is striking to observe in the light of discussion of the past century and a half how little the text is concerned with the process of creation. It does not allow us to be dogmatic over such questions as the length of time and order of God's creative process. Okay? But the passage definitely guards against the mythological or parabolic interpretation. There's a very big, I just had a, um, two weekends ago, three weekends ago, I was at the, uh, the uh, sort of the intersection of faith and theology, science and theology, uh, which, which was great. But th- there's a lot of movement. You know, what's, you know what's making a really big uh, ground now is theistic evolution. Okay? And I mean, some of the, one of the books I almost bought is like this thick. It's a collection of essays against it, you know, arguing against it. But you got guys like Collins, who was the head of. Uh, Yep, right. Yeah, Francis Collins, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and some of these others, Biologos, did you say that? Yeah. Yeah, he started it. Yeah, arguing for this sort of theistic evolution. And, but there are other things, there are other things that are, that are good that come out of it, the intelligent design movement and that kind of thing that helps us to um, understand sort of what God did. Uh, but but in, any, in any case, we rule out there has to be an historical Adam and Eve. Okay, so there are even those now that postulate perhaps there was, there were pre, so when we say Homo sapiens, and then there's Homo sapiens sapiens, this is the way that the science categorizes, that there were, that there could very well, again, this is, this is one position, um, there's a book out by guys, I didn't read the book, but I heard him interview, uh, Josh Hamadash, Gamadash, anyway, strange name and a strange theory, that there were plenty of human type species before you know, Adam and Eve, and certainly the fossil record would indicate there are bipedal primates, you know, primates that stood on two feet long before Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve became the first humans that God breathed, you know, his spirit, he put his spirit, his breathed the breath. So they, there's something very unique. There's a very unique Adam and Eve, and then from them, everybody else came. So there's that sort of, sort of people trying to understand what are we seeing in science, what are we seeing in the scientific record, and what are we seeing going on <clears throat> in Scripture? And being careful 
to not transgress the boundaries of either scientific disciplines or what, what scripture actually says. Because again, Genesis is not a scientific text. It just isn't. That's not, not the way they looked at creation. We'll get into that a little bit more. Rob Bowman, he's one of the teachers I had in my uh, master's program. Great guy. Um, he said, science and theology both deal with God's world because scripture makes statements about God's world, right? So, so, so <coughs> excuse me, uh, science and theology both deal with God's world because scripture makes statements about God's world. Therefore, it's possible for either discipline to shed light on the other. That's the way we have to see science in scripture. I think sometimes there's a concern, and, and a legitimate one, because of the way that humans abuse knowledge in general, right? That science is the great enemy of theology. And nothing could be further from the truth. The greatest science uh, discoveries came from who? Well, right? We go back to Christians of, of like the 18th century. Yeah. You go, you know, pre-enlightenment, you know. Um, you know, before, before the Enlightenment so-called is when, basically with, with Darwin and others, that, that as the way that Richard Dawkins said, Darwin made it possible, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, Darwin made it possible for man to be considered intellectual and smart without reference to God. Okay? So up until then, you didn't really talk about order, structure, and anything else, but God reference. Dawkins says that Darwin made that possible. We could do away with this whole stupid God idea. Right? But the truth is, both of those disciplines can help one another, for sure. All right, we have found out things. I can't get. I didn't get a bunch of examples, but there was a time when they thought that the Earth was a, was an was a stationary object in the universe. All right, and they 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 quoted scripture to defend that. Okay. What then is the point of the creation narratives? <clears throat> well. Again, we just saw how different the creation stories are in the Hebrew scriptures from the Babylon and the surrounding ancient Near East, right? God comes in and does something radically. He reveals the truth, which is so far removed from what so many in the cultures believe. That God is establishing his kingdom and preparing for his image bearers, okay? That's what's going on in creation, first and foremost. God is establishing his kingdom and preparing it for his image bearers. God was establishing functions and processes and order and purpose, right? And also, and I'm not going to get into this, just wanted to throw out little interesting nuggets. And you can decide on your own to follow some of these rabbit trails. The idea of a cosmic temple was widely known in the ancient Near East. They all believed that the gods were building their temples, that the cosmos was itself a temple for God. And a very good case could be made for the fact that the Hebrews, they saw what God was doing as building his cosmic temple. Okay, the, the temple in which he would be among his people and they would serve him and be there. So that, again, a fairly common theme among in ancient Near East thought. That creation is all about God or the gods in their minds creating this cosmic temple. Now, the big differences were that those temples, the gods would need men to serve them because they were dependent upon men. <laughs> Not so with God. And I'm spending a little additional time on this part because it's the most important part. It's the beginning, right? Everything follows from the creation narratives. All foundational theology and doctrine are grounded in the reality of God's sovereign acts of creation and the purposes that God had in mind. And what he's doing and the purposes he had in mind are the key things to understand in the creation narratives. Okay? Not whether it was whether or not it was six literal twenty four hour days, not whether or not God made Adam with or without a belly button. Not whether or not, you know, all these different questions that have come up over the years and Christians have fought about 
Look, I've, I've heard Christians in the past, not a long time, if you don't believe in a literal 624-hour creation, then you don't believe in Scripture and you don't believe in the Gospel either. Okay? I'm reminded of that verse from uh, that line in... Uh, <laughs> in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. That's it! Out you two pixies, go out the door or through the window, right? That's the way I want to respond when I hear that kind of stuff, right? And I used to hear a lot of that stuff in fundamentalism. Very helpful book I read at one point. And again, the, the general principles might be agreed upon. Some of the particulars are not. But interesting point that, that John Walt makes in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. And again, he's the same guy that wrote the commentary for Genesis in the NIV application series. In his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, he says, In this book I propose, I, I propose that people in the ancient world believed that something existed not by virtue of its material properties, but by virtue of it having a function in an ordered system. Okay? He gives an example of a computer. The hardware only does not really represent existence. Right? All the parts and the software need to be installed as well, as does a power source to run it. So when, the, uh, when God first formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, whatever that means, the dust of the ground, did he literally form him from the dust, or is that an allusion to the fact that he's mortal? Okay? Because lots of times in, in ancient thought, that sort of was a reference to that. It was an, uh, a way of illustrating, a way of saying the first, uh, of addressing mortality, which is my man will return to the dust from which it was formed. It's, 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 a, it's a device, it's a literary device to demonstrate mortality. I don't think it's making a scientific statement that we should be studying the dirt to find out if there are chemical elements in there that are necessary constituents to God's assembling man. That's not what the that's not what the book is talking about. Okay, um, <clears throat> and then he breathed into his nostrils, and it was only then that Adam was a living being, and God, as the text goes on to indicate, had a very specific function for Adam. Okay, in the ancient world, what was most crucial and, and significant was uh, was to their understanding of existence the way that the parts of the cosmos functioned, not their material status. And again, it was assumed that God created all the material stuff. That was, no one ever even thought about that. There was no atheism in the ancient Near East and East. That was a, even if it was polytheistic and everything else. We may say those people were pre-scientific and all that, but they were smart enough to know that this stuff doesn't just happen. You've got to remember, science, in many of its disciplines, has concluded that we've made God unnecessary because now we can explain something. Right. So, but again, and his his point is in the ancient Near East mind. When we talked about creating, we talked about the process of bringing order and direction and purpose and everything else. Much like when we talk about making cars or making cakes, you know, whatever it is that we're making, right? There's there's something more going on than just the physical stuff involved. We're not making a scientific statement, right? When I say well, I, I build computers, I'm not making a statement about. You know, what, what, if I say to you I build computers, you're automatically going to think about, oh, he takes metal cabinet, he puts a CPU in there, all right, he connects it all to a fan to keep the system cool, he needs random access memory so that in the, more, the more random access memory he installs, the less he'll have to spin that hard drive to access the files he needs on a regular basis so it doesn't slow down the computer. And if it does, I'll like, no, no, no. When I tell you I'm creating a building computer, you know that I'm putting together something that will gets you to the internet, gets you to the, it has a function, it has a purpose. And, and, and this is this gentleman's point. So that even, even to the extent that there is obviously a given material 
reality about the creation that God created all the stuff out of nothing. That's, that's another big thing, right? You've heard that Latin phrase, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Right? God didn't, he didn't need, God made all the pre-existent stuff. Right? We can only create with what God's given us. We can't make a whole new things like, we, everything we made, we make because God gave us the stuff. Right? So God made all the stuff. But, again, the ancient mind isn't so focused on, oh, what cool stuff. It's like, well, what's it do? What's it, what's it do? Well, why is it here? Right? So, in the six days of creation, whatever meaning that six days has, and again, we won't labor that because the material component of it, and again, in this position, is not the key. But there are certain very important things going on regardless. Okay, regardless of whether it's an older, regardless of all those things. Because this is true in either case. Night and day establish time. Dry land and sea are critical for growing and for fertile soil, for nutrient, for establishing topography. Okay, there's, there's waters below and waters above. So we have now systems of weather that are critical for the functioning and the operation of this planet. And notice also, God built distinction into everything. Male, female, light, dark, night, day. Right? And this is particular of importance today because of the, the whole male-female distinction because our culture is begging for God's severest judgment with the strange gender stuff. This is not funny. This is, right? I mean, this is, this is serious. This is, this is beyond anything. This is, I, this is like the final act of anti-creation, in my view. When you are now saying the distinctions that God built into humans, His image bearers, are not there. This is this is I. It's just my own mind that, that goes to place in no, the place. No, I'm with you. I mean, mm-hmm. I talk to others, and you know, you survey history, you have mm-hmm. polytheism, but yep. no at no time within human history mm-hmm. has man become now the idol. Right. Worldwide, across the board, uh, with this transgender, right. or I should say, gender theology. Right. Uh, man is the idol now rather than exactly. the God of the Son and, yep. and everything else. Final thing we'll touch on this week is man is God's image bearers. Okay? We just have a few minutes. Well, what does it mean to bear the image of God? What does it mean? What does it mean that we're created in His image? Just throw it out there. There's certain attributes that He, yes. he has. Okay. So that, or that, not, Example? Not that He's the, not that he's the yep. attributes. He's, yes. he's the is. Yes. So can you an example have, of an attribute? We have a desire for justice. Justice. Absolutely. Desire for justice. Okay. Yep. Something else? Risibility. I'm sorry? Risibility. The ability to laugh. Oh, cool. I like it. <laughs> Never heard of that word before. Yes. Anything else? Okay, so. <clears throat> Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is what God intended humans to be. To be an image bearer means, yes, we will have certain of those attributes, but even sort of before that, and those attributes come under that, is we represent God. And we were created to be his vice regents, his vice rulers. Remember I said that it's all about the rules, God's rulership over his kingdom. God created us to be his vice rulers, right? Uh, and again, all those attributes are important. And the main thing is that we rule with him. This is in Genesis 1.28. He gave them dominion. Go out there, subdue, and have dominion. You, go have dominion over all my stuff. The assumption is you're going to do that in the right way. Okay? Fascinating to, to, to take a look. And how do we know that this is what it means to be an image bearer and how important it is? We'll close with this. Revelation 22, verses 3 to 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. 
They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will, know, they will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be the light and they will reign forever and ever. They will reign forever and ever. This is the completion. This is the, and, and, if you, and if you back up a little bit, right? if you go back to 22, at the beginning you see of that chapter, the angel showed me the river of water of life. You go to Genesis chapter 2, 10, 5 and it's talking about the rivers of Eden and the tree of life. And in the Revelation, you're seeing the trees that are the, for the healings of the nations with the different fruit. Everything is right. Everything is, and we'll pick up with this next week, everything is restored to its good, the way that God created it. So, that's a good. Next week, we're going to cover the main, other main movements in Genesis, uh, some of the main things we see happening. It was important to spend a, 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 uh, almost an unbalanced amount of time in the creation part because if we don't get that right, nothing else follows appropriately and accordingly. We're going, to follow, we're going to find out what does it mean in this? What, what is God's rule? What is God expressing about His kingdom? What is He saying He wants it to be? Okay? How is man <clears throat> turning around and mooning God in the process? Because it's not only what God has to say. And number three, how is God responding to man? Right? <laughs> Good job, Todd. Got that. All right? How is God responding to man's rebellion? And all of that will be very important. So, uh, thanks for your attention. And I, it, was my, it was my hope and my goal to touch a couple of passion points because that's where we find our worldview. That's where we find key things that we need to talk about. So, uh, if I can't walk too aggressive, if I can't walk too aggressive, please pardon me for that. It wasn't my intent. Uh, so, um, it, but just, it's so important for us because we have, um, not, not in that alone, but like in creation, in the Old Testament, we are going to have things that we are so settled on in our mind and we repeat it to ourselves over and over again and hurt other people that we might miss a bigger, more important point, even cooler than the point that we think we've got our arms around. And that's my hope from the Old Testament. We can say, wow, that's so cool, you know. Um, I think at one point, I, I remember another church experience, I think I taught some things in the Old Testament, it was, I think the title was, Come and Be Filled with All that Jesus Fulfilled, you know. How, how Jesus' mission was to be the human. By the way, that's what Adam means, right? The human. So, I mean, Adam is the human. Eve means life. But so we'll talk about those things in greater detail next week. And so somebody pray for us. Do we have a lady that would pray? Okay. No. Okay. In that case. No. Yes. No. Okay. okay. Oh, good. Thanks. Our loving Father, we thank you for this time together. There's so much to learn about what you have for us in store, Lord. Uh, thank you for being with Pat and. All the work he puts into uh, all this information, we're just so grateful for it. Uh, Lord, lead us out today and bring us to our service, and may we have an enjoyable time together. In the most precious and living name we pray. Amen. Amen.